This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Modern blasphemies that threaten to become common in today's confused world. The Oxford Dictionary defines the word blasphemy as the act or offense of speaking sacrilegiously about God or sacred things. By that definition, our world reeks of blasphemy. It is all around us. In fact, it is so common that many people don't even notice it. Even many who take their religious commitment seriously can overlook blasphemy. In many cases, the fault does not lie with a lack of faith, but because true religion is constantly under assault. Like soldiers on a battlefield, these well-meaning people exhibit a kind of PTSD, what the World War II generation called shell shock. Their reactions come from the fact that these people have seen so much conflict and are terrified at the thought that any new controversy might arise. So they eagerly try to avoid disputes. However, that fear does not solve the disputes. It only delays the eventual explosion. In fact, these explosions are even more destructive because their force has been contained until the container bursts. Recently, Pope Francis tied our Lord to the failures of Marxism when he said, If I see the gospel in a sociological way only, yes, I am a communist, and so too is Jesus. Mr. Luis Sergio Salomeo considers the implications of that blasphemous statement in today's first essay. Last November, Pope Francis gave the Jesuits of the left-leaning America magazine an extensive and exclusive interview on, quote, a wide range of topics, including polarization in the U.S. church, racism, the war in Ukraine, the Vatican's relations with China, and church teaching on the ordination of women, unquote. Among the addressed issues, perhaps the most serious and troubling is Pope Francis's attitude in the face of accusations that he is sympathetic to socialism and communism. In the interview, Father Matt Malone, S.J., departing editor-in-chief of America, said to Pope Francis, quote, In the United States, there are those who interpret your criticisms of market capitalism as criticisms of the United States. There are even some who think you may be a socialist, or they call you a communist, or they call you a Marxist. The Argentine Pope's answer is stunning. If I see the gospel in a sociological way only, yes, I am a communist, and so too is Jesus. Behind these Beatitudes and Matthew 25, there is a message that is Jesus' own, and that is to be a Christian. The communists stole some of our Christian values. It is shocking for a pope to insinuate that the gospel, viewed in a sociological way only, reveals that Jesus was a communist, and therefore he is too. Besides being blasphemous, Such an insinuation stems from a methodological error. Obviously, a sociological analysis of the gospel, in strictly scientific terms, does not lead to that conclusion. That only occurs if one adopts the so-called Marxist analysis as scientific, as does liberation theology. Now, Marxist analysis is nothing but an adaptation of reality to the a prioristic Marxist premises. 
Marxists do not investigate reality according to objective facts, but interpret and adapt it to previous conclusions of the Communist and Socialist Party's ideology. It is not surprising that Pope Francis states, the Communists stole some of our Christian values. It also explains his lavish praise for the late Cardinal Agostino Casaroli, the leading promoter of the Vatican policy of detente with communist regimes, who affirmed, quote, Catholics who live in Cuba are happy under the socialist regime, unquote. Ditto Pope Francis's satisfaction concerning the dialogue with China, because, he says, the Chinese are, quote, a people of great wisdom, unquote. Everyone knows that he is not dialoguing with the Chinese people, but with the Chinese Communist Party. Earlier in the interview, Pope Francis clarified the relativistic background of his thinking. Having referred to the present polarization of American public opinion and life within the church, the new editor of America magazine, Father Sam Sawyer, S.J., asked, How can the church respond to polarization within its own life and help respond to polarization in society? Pope Francis answered categorically, Polarization is not Catholic. Polarization on philosophical, religious, or other topics results from disagreement about their correctness or veracity. So there is a clash in public opinion or sectors of it. In the context of Father Sawyer's question, answering that polarization is not Catholic is tantamount to saying that Catholics cannot defend their beliefs passionately and seek to prevent evils such as procured abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and other issues that divide Americans. Those who do not come out in defense of the perennial truths do not cause polarization. Rather, polarization is caused by those who move away from the pole of truth to that headed by the devil, a liar and the father thereof. See John chapter 8 verse 44. The church had great polemicists from the beginning, starting with the church fathers who fought the anti-Trinitarian Gnostic, Manichaean, and Pelagian heresies. Suffice it to recall Saints Irenaeus, Athanasius, Jerome, and Augustine. Later, Saint Robert Bellamine, a member of the once glorious Society of Jesus, refuted Protestant errors so thoroughly that a chair of controversies at the Gregorian University was created for him. He was one of the church's most famous polemicists. Even Graver, in trying to justify his claim that polarization is not Catholic, Pope Francis denies the fundamental principle of non-contradiction, according to which one cannot affirm and deny the same thing at the same time and under the same aspect. This intuitive principle is at the core of human thought, and its negation leads to complete relativism. Nevertheless, Pope Francis insisted on this point, leaving no room for doubt as to his thinking. Quote, Polarization is not Catholic. A Catholic cannot think either or and reduce everything to polarization. 
the essence of what is Catholic is both good and. The Catholic unites the good and the not-so-good. The more harmony there is between the differences and the opposites, the more Catholic it is. The more polarization there is, the more one loses the Catholic spirit and falls into a sectarian spirit. This saying is not mine, but I repeat it. What is Catholic is not either or, but is both and, combining differences. And this is how we understand the Catholic way of dealing with sin, which is not puritanical, saints and sinners, both together. Unquote. As Italian father Enrico Finati aptly observed in a highly timely article published last year, quote, In the process of seeking and determining the truth, one must resort to either or. In fact, there is only one truth, and it is opposed to error. It is not possible to combine together truth and falsehood, good and evil, God and the devil, unquote. He adds that denying the principle of non-contradiction, quote, would imply the denial of rationality itself and would lead to the terrible confusion of irrational relativism, where all society would collapse and we would be overwhelmed by the vortexes of the ephemeral nihilist, unquote. Pope Francis is consistent with his denial of the principle of non-contradiction. In the same reply to Father Sawyer, he states, If we see how the Holy Spirit acts, it first causes disorder. Think of the morning of Pentecost and the confusion and mess it created there, and then it brings about harmony. The Holy Spirit in the church does not reduce everything to just one value. Rather, it harmonizes opposing differences. Unquote. To claim that the Holy Spirit first causes disorder when he acts is blasphemy. The third person of the Holy Trinity could not operate from disorder. For being supreme wisdom, God is supreme order as well. Pope Francis gives Pentecost, considered the Church's public birth, as an example of the disorder through which the Holy Spirit supposedly acts. On that occasion, gathered in the Cenacle, the apostles received the Holy Spirit as our Lord had promised, were confirmed in grace, and went forth full of zeal to preach the wonderful works of God. See Acts chapter 2 verse 11. The Spirit of Truth, see John chapter 14 verse 17, cannot act through disorder, which is the opposite of God's order the things or acts arranged according to divine wisdom and ultimately aimed at his glory. Just as truth does not proceed from error, order cannot proceed from disorder. However, based on absurdity, one can say anything, as did Father Antonio Spadaro, S.J., editor-in-chief of Civilta Cattolica, who believes that, in theology, 2 plus 2 can equal 5. This interview, in which Pope Francis confuses sociology with Marxism and denies the principle of non-contradiction, 
further aggravates the terrible crisis the papacy and the church are going through. Our Lord has permitted this crisis as a punishment for our sins, given the shameless immorality in today's world where Satan is receiving public worship in some places. However, we must not be discouraged. Amid the terrible storm shaking the Church of Christ, we must remain faithful to her doctrine and confident in the words of the Divine Savior. I have overcome the world. See John chapter 16, verse 33. Mary Most Holy, the Mother of Good Counsel, will help us to remain faithful to the perennial magisterium of the Church. Perhaps the most blasphemous people are those who become convinced that they can play God in their attempts to control life and death. We see their breed in many of today's conflicts, particularly abortion and euthanasia. Some take those ideas to their ultimate limits. Mr. John Horvat discusses these radicals in his essay, The Human Extinction Movement Targets God and You. Before Modernity Christianity guided individuals to live according to human nature and the moral law established by the Creator. This system allowed families and societies to prosper and helped people in their quest for sanctification and the final destination of heaven. The 18th century Enlightenment threw everything into darkness. People claimed that they could not have certainties about God, His moral law, or heaven. Through science and reason, they imagined a world without God and moral restraints. They made liberty, not sanctification, the supreme achievement of life. Over time, people have followed this freedom to include the right to do just about everything, even self-destruction. It hardly seems possible that humanity would have degenerated from desiring heaven to seeking out annihilation. But that is what is happening. A growing human extinction movement is moving out of the fringes and into the mainstream. These people do not want to exist, nor do they want others to survive. The quest for non-being comes when liberalism which acclaims reason and science, is crumbling. 19th century liberalism sought to establish a regime where humanity would be freed from the restrictions of tradition, religion, and social structures. This vision proposed the liberated individual as the supreme model and controller of personal destiny. People dreamed of a super-industrialized society that would facilitate this freedom so that all could be whatever they wanted. Thus, modernity built a society that sought freedom inside a naturalistic and materialistic vision of reality, excluding the official recognition of anything supernatural and spiritual. It frustrated people because they could not satisfy spiritual desires that are part of human nature. Postmodernity entered the scene in the 60s and introduced a new kind of exhilarating freedom that sought not after reason and science, but the more spiritual imagination, fantasy, and unreality. Individuals freed themselves from internal structures like reason, identity, and narratives. 
People can be whatever they want to be, or even not be at all. Hence comes the 21st century human extinction movement. It is a consequence of exacerbated freedom that finds the most basic structures of identity and even biology suffocating. For example, advocates like Israeli author Yuval Noah Harari deny the existence of the soul, free will, consciousness, and self. All these restrictive structures must be eliminated. Indeed, being becomes onerous and oppressive, leading to the desire for human extinction. In a feature article in The Atlantic, December 1, 2022, the writer Adam Kirsch traces this path to extinction. His book is expressively titled The Revolt Against Humanity, Imagining a Future Without Us. He documents the growing acceptance of human extinction everywhere. He writes, quote, From Silicon Valley boardrooms to rural communes to academic philosophy departments, a seemingly inconceivable idea is being seriously discussed, that the end of humanity's reign on Earth is imminent and that we should welcome it, unquote. The revolt against humanity can be divided into two contrary currents. They may radically disagree on many issues, but they share the desire for the disappearance of humans from the earth. The first human extinction group consists of anti-humanist radicals who see the human abuse of nature as a justification for looking forward to extinction. It rejects and hates the traditional Christian narrative that puts humanity at the center of God's creation to be served by lower beings. In his book, Better Never to Have Been, philosopher David Benatar argues that the extinction of humanity would not deprive the universe of anything valuable or significant. He claims any pretense of importance is human arrogance or misplaced sentimentalism. Indeed, it is better that, quote, things will someday be the way they should be. There will be no people, unquote. In this vision, humanity is a hateful virus infecting the earth that needs to be eradicated. There need not be any being that has a conscious understanding of the universe. Nature alone without perceived meaning would suffice. The second group of extinction advocates consists of transhumanists who welcome the demise of humanity in its present state. Humanity's role is to invent its successor, using cybernetic technologies to go beyond being human. In the words of Yuval Harari, each can be homo deus, a man-god that transcends material limitations. This current is more metaphysical and Gnostic than the first one. These futurists talk of animating the universe by turning all matter, humanity, and energy into data. They speak about freeing humanity from the embodiment of physical forms. Adam Kirsch likens the process to the, quote, ancient Hindu belief that the Atman, the individual soul, is identical to the Brahman, the world spirit, unquote. 
One ideal world of the transhumanists resembles an immense meta-narrative in which uploaded minds could, quote, have experiences and adventures we can only dream of, like living in a movie or a video game, unquote. It also foresees the possibility of artificial intelligence creations taking over the world and suppressing human beings who made them. Transhumanists see the need for someone to experience the world consciously if life is to have meaning. However, they do not care if the perceiver is transhuman, a machine, animated data, or all of the above. Human extinction ideas have already entered the postmodern world. It is found in the emphasis on experience over human life, as seen in procured abortion, assisted suicide, euthanasia, and ecological schemes. Others call for nihilism, the abandonment of civilization, and the end of childbearing, which is already reflected in demographic trends. The enemy is humanity that must be suppressed, even those who do not desire extinction. The actual target, however, is God, since man is made in his image and likeness. The human extinction currents want the image and likeness of God erased or replaced. They cannot bear an existence by which one is indebted to a benevolent creator. Both currents are the logical result of Enlightenment liberal thought that imagines a self-centered world without God. Both share a hatred for the Creator and His wise limitations on finite creatures that secure their happiness. Unable to become gods, advocates of these currents seek annihilation for everyone, be it as a species or a transitional state of development. This attitude mirrors Satan's, who would prefer not to exist rather than to serve God. Those who style themselves trans-advocates regularly commit blasphemies of their own. It is only God who can decide if someone is male or female, and this decision becomes obvious when the child is born, if not before. However, the trans community and their supporters are eager to take this role unto themselves. They use a number of verbal tricks as an attempt to convince those who should know better. Edwin Benson considers one such attempt in his essay, At Cambridge University, when the truth is abandoned, the worst blasphemies are possible. Recently, our Lord Jesus Christ was blasphemed in a sermon at Cambridge University. Quote, In Christ's simultaneously masculine and feminine body in these works, if the body of Christ, as these works suggest, is the body of all bodies, then his body is also the trans body. Unquote. According to the British newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, that blasphemy was the conclusion of a sermon at the Trinity College Chapel, a part of Cambridge University. During the sermon, Dr. Joshua Heath displayed three medieval depictions of our Lord's crucifixion. Somehow out of them, he managed to construct a crude do-it-yourself form of blasphemy. 
In one of the images, he claimed, the spear wound inflicted by the Roman soldiers, quote, takes on a decidedly vaginal appearance, unquote, according to a report in the Washington Examiner. Dr. Heath is a junior research fellow at Trinity College. His graduate work was supervised by Rowan Williams, who held the title of Archbishop of Canterbury from 2002 to 2012. Dr. Williams's only superior in the Anglican Church was Queen Elizabeth II. That means that Dr. Heath was trained, in part, by the highest ecclesiastical official of the Church of England. While some worshippers shouted heresy and left in tears, the man in charge of the chapel, Dr. Michael Banner, Dean of Trinity College, found Dr. Heath's blasphemy plausible. Quote, For myself, I think the speculation was legitimate. Whether or not you or I or anyone else disagrees with the interpretation, says something else about that artistic tradition, or resists its application to contemporary questions around transsexualism. Unquote. It is hard to say which was worse, the blasphemer or the one validating the blasphemy. That level of arrogance and stupidity could only come from the mouth of men in revolt against God. The horrific incident shows to what lengths leftists will reach to justify the fallacy that a man can become a woman or vice versa, and that such a quote-unquote transition is not sinful. Indeed, they assert, it may be a part of God's perfect will and attached to divine nature. This blasphemy reflects a clear social agenda that willingly distorts the truth to achieve its ends. They want to substitute a counterfeit set of pseudo-ethics for God-given morality. Both men function within a decadent system that replaced political advantage for any form of academic integrity many years ago. Indeed, such considerations can be found everywhere. Consider a comment made by President Biden last March reflecting this position. Quote, To everyone celebrating Transgender Day of Visibility, I want you to know that your president sees you. Jill, Kamala, Doug Emhoff, the vice president's husband, our entire administration sees you for who you are made an image of God and deserving of dignity, respect, and support, unquote. In certain circles, such affirmations are prevalent. They typify the postmodern desire to create one's own identity, narrative, and destiny, regardless of one's appearance and nature. This so-called individual autonomy transcends reality and pushes people into the most bizarre fantasy. Individuals change reality to be whatever they decide. They might even decide how they want God to be, as in the case of Dr. Heath. Indeed, if each possesses a unique truth, then each must ask, who am I to judge? Postmodern individuals find nothing wrong with such musings. They might ask, Aren't we all free to chart our own course, to create our own destiny? 
there are at least two answers to this question. First, a person is limited by nature by not being God. Each person was born in a specific time and place, to a particular pair of parents, with certain specific biological traits, including those that determine sex. Individuals share a human nature that cannot be changed. Some are born male and others are female. There is nothing in between. To argue otherwise is to say that God made mistakes when he made each person. No one who believes in an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, as all Christians do, can assert that God errs when making all either male or female. He would not be so cruel as to place a male in a female body or vice versa. Therefore, only by acting within those limitations can each person find happiness within God's perfect will. The pretense of being something else ultimately destroys the soul. It leads the individuals to fantasies that eventually lead them to imagine God in their own image and likeness or as transsexual as found in the blasphemies of Dr. Heath. The second lesson concerns a fundamental problem within Protestantism. Dr. Heath's statement is not only blasphemous, it is also grossly absurd. In his eagerness to deconstruct our Lord's human nature as a man, he cuts himself off from the truth. He has no anchor to attach himself to the truth. He is the product of a flawed philosophical system that raised and trained him. When the Anglican Church revolted against the Catholic Church, it abandoned the magisterial body of knowledge and understanding consistently developed since Pentecost. Free from the restrictions of a central teaching authority, Anglicanism's theological underpinnings have deteriorated during its nearly 500-year existence. It has now reached the point where Anglican professors like Dr. Heath are free to develop the most blasphemous opinions without fear of rebuke. Inevitably, controversies arise within the Church of England. In an establishment where politics often trumps theology, the only way to resolve these differences is through a democratic process. Anglican doctrines were, and are, settled by majority rule at periodic Lambeth conferences, which try to establish some kind of unified Anglican opinion. Since the Anglican Communion has no central authoritative government, the bishops meet and treat each other as equals. The Archbishop of Canterbury presides as host and chairman. The tendency is to allow anything that seems popular, like women priests and bishops. Therefore, Anglicanism falls into a trap that our Lord described in Luke chapter 6, verses 48 to 49. Quote, He is like to a man building a house who digged deep and laid the foundation upon a rock. And when the flood came, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doth not is like to a man building his house upon the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently 
and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Unquote. That ruin has manifested itself in many ways since Henry VIII claimed supremacy in 1534. Dr. Heath's blasphemy is only the most recent. The shifting sands of politics, popularity, and novelty cannot produce truth. This concludes Modern Blasphemies That Threaten to Become Common in Today's Confused World. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please remember that we publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. There are two ways to make sure that you don't miss future episodes. The first way is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. We ask subscribers to give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out the motivation behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.